You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Today I'd ask you to turn with me in God's Word to Psalm 27. We're still in that in-between time. I hope next week, uh, it's my plan at least to begin a new series with you next week that I'll tell you what it is when we get there. But today we're looking at a psalm of strength. We've just talked about a place to rest, a place to be confident and secure where we don't need an argument to convince us about who God is. That's definitely the theme of Psalm 27, one of David's psalms, rather well-known. I'd like to look at it with you today. Psalm 27, listen as I read. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the head of enemies who surround me. And at His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my mother and Father forsake me. The Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. This is God's Word. Underneath every relationship that you have in this world with any human being or with God is a factor of trust. Think about it. Every single relationship you have with another human being has some element of trust in it, and when trust erodes or breaks down, the relationship starts to go with it. There's so many ways in which we exhibit trust in different fashions. 
The simple act of shaking hands with somebody when you meet him is, is like an initial act of, of saying, well, I welcome you. I, I will trust you until I learn to do differently. Or maybe it says a hand clasp of strength that says, welcome, friend. I have learned to trust you. Putting money in the bank is an act of trust. How do you know the bank will be there tomorrow and return the money you've put in their care? Some would say that even bestowing a tender kiss on someone is an expression of trust. We all need to answer some important questions about our relationships. We trust a lot of people in minor ways in our lives, but we all need those that we can trust in an ultimate way. When the pressure's on and when there's nowhere else to turn, who do you ultimately trust? And alongside that, What has that person done to prove to you in in a consistent manner that they are worthy of that trust? Now, of course, if we're talking about God as the person in whom you give ultimate trust, He's no ordinary person. To know Him is to trust Him, or to begin trusting Him at least. But we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with our trust in God when really, really challenging circumstances come along. When you not only lose the job, but a new one doesn't seem to come along after three or six or nine months, can you keep trusting Him? How is your trust in God doing when the cancer diagnosis is not responding to the doctor's treatment? How is trust in God accessible to you and a help to you when Real strife or conflict or rebellion begins to come within your family, perhaps between parent and child or adult child. What about when real problems and controversies erupt at work and you're at the center of a storm? Are you in touch with your trust in God? What about when a marriage breaks down? Are you still holding on to your trust in God? Well, it depends on a number of things, doesn't it? Psalm 27 is a familiar psalm that we turn to. We pull it out at times of severe stress and pressure. I remember on September 11, 2001, that Tuesday, when we had an impromptu service of prayer in our sanctuary that day when all of us were feeling under such pressure and strife. As you remember, churches opened everywhere, and those that don't even know how to open their doors during the week opened their doors for folks to come and pray as America had been under attack. That night we read Psalm 27, a psalm that spells out the steadfastness of God when our foundations seem to be cracking and hostile attacks are coming against us. It gives us the practical experience of David and how he stood firm, but not simply in his own strength. He stood firm because of the greatness of his God. It's a very realistic psalm. The human man, David, comes to light, and I'll get to this in verses 7 through 12. He's not some kind of a stoic here who never could entertain the possibility of doubting anything. He's a man who's undercurrents and base of assurance in God were well built, and he was able to hold on to them 
as he wrestled in prayer and honestly faced his difficulties. We think this psalm comes from a time early in David's life before he was king. He probably composed it, the experts think, when Saul was chasing him around the wilderness. Remember that time in his life God had said, you're going to be the king. Well, it sure didn't look like it for quite a few years. Saul, in all his threatenings, was breathing out unjust things against David and chasing him with soldiers. He had to live in caves and move about furtively trying to escape, and that certainly wears a person down when the very king of the land who is half mad with jealousy is trying to destroy you. Well, here is a book that tells us something of the Bible's honesty as it demonstrates faith that shined out because it was tested. If there's a sheen to David's faith here, it's metal that's been melted down partially by a fire and then polished by abrasive opposition. And I think this psalm challenges us about our settled assurance in our God and Savior that would remain firm under our feet no matter what threat comes against it of a personal kind or a national calamity? Do we have an assurance of faith as children of God, as those who know Jesus Christ, who are beyond David in our knowledge of God's progressive revelation? We know about Christ, the Son of David, who came to fulfill all things. Do we have a similar solid base to take a stand upon in the great business of life? Do we know that God has already settled the business that is underway? That God has already decided the battle that we're in? Do we know that? As a summation of Psalm 27, I can't possibly improve on a statement of John Calvin in his commentary who wrapped up, I think, precisely what this psalm is about. Calvin wrote, Weighing all the powers of earth and hell arrayed against him in a great scale, David calculates them to be as light as a feather, considering that God alone outweighs the whole of them. All the terrible troubles he faced looked to him to be as light as a feather because God alone outweighed the whole of them. This psalm organizes itself rather easily and well, and we're going to look at the first six verses here for a first point. Psalm 27, 1 through 6, gives us a bold statement of God-based assurance. And it starts right out, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones very helpfully says, notice that this song starts out in heaven. Obviously, it starts out with God, not with human problems. And it tells us something. Don't start on earth. Don't start with your problem and expect to get off it. Start with God. Start with God. For if you... Start dwelling on your problem alone and say, oh, whoa, how can anything ever happen in light of these difficult things I'm facing? You'll never get past that. You'll never break out of your cocoon of self-centeredness. But David started with God. Because there were fears and anxieties and opponents 
he looked to the truth of what he could know about the Most High One who stood way above his little troubles, even if they looked big to him. And only when we start with a biblical study of who God is will we ever expect to be able to come out of that study at the end saying things like, I know for a certainty. I am persuaded. I am confident. I am certain. Because you don't discover confidence or certainty in a knowledge of yourself. You don't start with yourself as a weak, chameleon-like, sinful, unreliable, ever-changing person at the core of your nature and say, I'm going to find something stable and lasting here in myself. If you start there, you'll never get past yourself. And so the remarkable thing is a very obvious thing. David started with God, and he was able to end with God after he had evaluated the test that he faced. One word we point out about what he said about God, the Lord is my light. You know, of course, that this is a reoccurring symbol in the Bible. God is often likened to the dawn of light, He dwells in unapproachable light, the Scripture says. Genesis 1 tells us the very first fact we can learn about God is (coughs) that by His bare spoken command, (coughs) God said, let there be light. And whatever there was before that didn't matter and can't be understood because until God somehow broke open and divided things, so that there was light in creation. There was no possibility of knowing those deep mysteries that only He knew. He brought light into the creation and began to unfold how creation would take form. Anytime that we're in spiritual trouble or relational trouble, we're in some kind of darkness. And people in darkness ask these kinds of questions. They say, why? Is this happening to me? I don't have enough light to see the why. I don't understand. They say, where should I turn? I can't see. I can't find a path. I don't, uh, there's no highway mapped out for me. I don't have a global positioning system in my soul to tell me where to go. We ask those questions because we're in the dark. But this starts with the declaration, this Psalm 27, the Lord is our light. His revealed Word, the revelation He gives of Himself in Scripture is that first dawn, like Genesis 1, of any understanding, any comprehension, any ability to see beyond the end of my own nose is going to come from light that God is going to give. And that isn't just in some vague, abstract way because it becomes very, very concrete in the New Testament. A verse like 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that tells us we have, amazingly, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible's proclamation is that Christ is the center point, point, the brightest part of God's illumination of worldly darkness because in Him we see all of God that can be seen in a human being. He fulfills what was said in another psalm Psalm 36, verse 9, there the psalmist prays to the Lord and says, Lord, in your light, we see light. In other words, the more you give light, the brighter our world becomes. 
And the scripture says in Jesus Christ we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ himself. We learn the character of God. We learn how God thinks. We learn about his mercy and his grace and his strength. And so the Bible's not just using false symbols when it tells us that God's total revelation of himself, Old Testament and New Testament, is like setting up a whole chain of coastal lighthouses in our lives close enough together that there isn't any major place that doesn't have some illumination available. Yes, some places are are darker than others and some are brighter, but we don't stumble along and say, well, there's a whole vast territory where there's no light at all. No, God has given us Christ who is like the sun at the center of our solar system. And even on a gloomy day like this, a very dark day, his light is present. In the character of Christ, we even get glimpses of God's own face. We know who God is. He's not, a, he's not entirely a mystery. Yes, there are mysterious aspects of God, but He's not a complete mystery. And so, this declaration says God is our salvation because He lightens our darkness. But then David speaks here about what he faces in verses 2 and 3 especially, and he's not naive about it. He knows he's in real danger. He knows that Saul has employed the best of his troops to hunt him out, and it's going to require constant vigilance and skill to evade them, even in the, the tangled wilderness of Judea where there were a lot of caves and valleys and places to hide. And he describes his opposition, evil men, foes, armies. Have you ever had to face an army coming against? You say, maybe I've I feel that way sometimes, but I don't think very many of us have literally been pursued by an army before. Even if a war broke out, and and that's just about what was going on with David. Saul was at war with him. And David says, there are a lot of them, and they're well-armed, and they're skilled, and they know how to hunt me down. And if they found me, they would slay me. They want to devour my flesh. They They don't just want to maybe take me under protective custody. Their order has been Kill him if you find him. Well, that's pretty threatening. I would say it's a lot worse than any opposition you or I face in our lives right now. And yet, even with that terrible opposition, he's not naive about it. He faces it full on, but he says, look, I also know my God. I know how the odds are stacked here. And I know that on my side is absolute omnipotence. And therefore, I can look at at this and at these hostile, threatening enemies, and I can estimate things and say why those enemies are like so many mice. Because on my side, there might as well be a band of tigers. It's the same logic Paul applied in Romans 8 when he said, if God be for us, who can stand against us? Are there people against us? Of course. But God is for us. On my side is omnipotence, David was able to see. And this was the the entire mindset of this worshiping man as he faced his problems. And so I want you to see how key it is what he says in verses 4 through 6, still declaring strength in God. And he makes a determination here, you might say, or a compact with himself One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this is what I will seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. Now, 
If you tried to take this very, very literally, you would say, well, David wants to, he's out in the wilderness, he wishes he were able to go to the tabernacle. Remember, the temple isn't built yet. But he wants to, he's saying, I want to go to the place where God is worshipped. I want to be in God's house. I want to gaze on him. I want to just have that security of being in his presence and learning of him and celebrating his beauty and adoring him. Is it all just wishful thinking? Well, no, not at all. David isn't concerned here so much about a literal house, we don't believe, as he is when he says the house of the Lord or dwelling with the Lord. He's talking about that relation of dwelling in his relationship of worship and adoration of God on a regular and consistent daily basis so that he is thinking of God. He is consciously placing God in the fore part of his thoughts, in the entry part of his mind, not somewhere hidden in a back cave or a back recess where every once in a while he says, oh, I better go try to think of God. I haven't thought about him in a long time. He says, no, I'm going to install thoughts of God, if it were, right in the gathering space of my mind, the place that I come to, that everyone enters and and leaves my mind. They pass by the presence of God because I'll be thinking about him in that way. It's very much like what Paul was saying in Colossians 3.1, the idea of a Christian consciously setting affections on things above where Christ is hid, or Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. He's seated there at the hand. In other words, I'm going to train my mind. I'm going to make myself pick up God's Word. I am going to pray. I'm going to go in such a way that God becomes one of the first things I think about every day and the last thing I think about every day, and that means He will somehow enter into everything I think about all day in between. I'm going to dwell on the Lord and adore Him. I'm going to sing songs to Him. This is a singer of songs, you know. David, verse 6, he says, I'm going to have shouts of joy. There'll be times even in my fugitive life when I, hidden in some miserable cave, want to shout out and say, great is my God. And maybe he had his harp with him, I don't know. But he he says, I will sing, whether he was speaking figuratively or literally here, I'm going to be able to sing to my God, even if I have to do it alone and unaccompanied. Now, can this be said of us? Do we have David's determination that we will cultivate the knowledge of God that is not something unavailable to us. It's very available. It's in His Word that we will take hold of that knowledge, feed on that knowledge, discipline ourselves to be familiar with that knowledge of God so that it all infiltrates our consciousness and our daily lives. And God will occupy a massive place because our minds are filled with the truth of Scripture. And the goodness and the grace and the power and the characteristics of God will be things I'm very, very aware of because I've taken advantage of opportunities to hear the Word preached and to study the Word with others and to pray with others and to pray myself and to have private time with God's Word. I've let God, in other words, fill up such a large spot of real estate in my thinking and in my heart that there's very little space left for fears and anxieties to move in and set up their camp. At least when they do move in, they have to reckon with this huge occupant who's at the center of my thinking. 
Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish Puritan, said, when Christ is our rock, we learn that it is not the rock that ebbs and flows every hour with threats that come, but only the sea around that rock. How much we need to be reminded of this. A knowledge of God that sees Him as the central rock, refuge, fortress, stronghold. There He is, that great solid being at the center of our focus. How foolish we look when the very first thing we do when a threat comes or a difficulty or a temptation or a hard circumstance and we run around and say, oh, whoa, 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 what can I do? What can I... Wait a minute, David says, my feet are already on that rock. I'm already planted there. I know my God. And I'm going to have to be knocked down hard and dragged off that rock for you to find me without confidence and assurance in a time of threat. Well, that's his his strong statement, but the psalm now takes a turn at verse 7 to a second point. And from verses 7 through 12, we see David in the honest struggle of daily prayer. The psalm changes. The pronouns change. David is talking to God now instead of boasting about Him. Do you see that? He's talking directly to God. Hear my voice, O Lord, when I call. Be merciful and answer me. He's praying. And the tone, at least for a couple of verses, especially 7 through 9, have a sort of anxiousness about it, almost a plaintiveness. And there's an honesty here as he prays. Lord, don't leave me. Don't don't reject me. Don't let me seek you in vain. I'm I'm concerned. And there are commentators who write and say, well, my goodness, this psalm takes such a turn so abruptly. How could the same psalm be attributed to the very same man, you know, when he was bursting with confidence, and now all of a sudden he sounds plaintive, and he's even considering the possibility of being abandoned. And so you get those folks who want to deconstruct the Bible, and they'll say, oh, we must have some other song that got pasted on to the first song. No, that's not right at all. In fact, it's absolutely wrong. This isn't somehow a breakdown or, or some kind of unexplainable difficulty. It's simply a human man. A man in whom, of course, there are times when affirmations about God are going to give way to quivering questions in the darker times and the lonely times and when trouble really hems him in. Isn't it true of us? Do you have an honesty like David's here that would say, well, of course, there are times I can sit in the service on Sunday morning and feel absolutely assured by by my God. And then I'm out there at 11 o'clock on Monday morning and the problems are piled up and I think, oh no, what will I do? How will I ever overcome? Well, that's all you have here is David, the honest man, going to God and wrestling in prayer. One of the pivotal points of this, maybe it isn't easily seen, is verse 8. Psalm 27, 8. What he seems to be saying here, my heart says, or somehow someone told me to seek your face. So I am seeking your face, Lord. Many would would think what David is really saying here is, look, Lord, you originated this relationship with me. You're the one who called me and said, seek after me. And so I'm doing it. I'm just responding to 
your initiative to have a relationship with me. Am I going to respond to that initiative and find that you didn't mean it, that you didn't want a relationship after all? You see, he's, he's giving himself a logic to cling to. God started this relationship. Will he not fulfill it? And it seems to me as if that helps him get his feet back under himself. I thank God for a wife who can listen to me in all kinds of moods of spiritual difficulty as well as strength and sunshine. There was a time, I have to admit, just about 10 days ago when one evening I was really down, full of self-doubts. I would even call it a, a time of mild spiritual depression, I think is the right word. And I said something that was a very discouraged comment. And my wife knows me well enough to listen to me and not to get thrown completely off by what I'm saying. And just to gently remind me of what my footing and confidence is and that it will be back under my feet again, and indeed it was in a very short time. But it's so encouraging for me to know that David's like that. That he can get off and say, oh Lord, might I be missing you? Might you turn away from me? That would be the worst thing. You see, David knows what the worst thing is that will happen. Not that the enemy will sweep in and kill him, but that he would lose God. That was his worst case outcome. He even feared the right thing here as he prayed. And so it's encouraging to see him pulling no punches, having this wrestling with God right out here in the open, I think to encourage us that God doesn't intend to hide his face. He has initiated the relationship of prayer. He intends to fulfill it. Another Puritan, Robert Bolton, once said, faith, which is never assaulted by any doubting, is a fantasy. The assurance that remains equally secure every moment of every day, Bolton said, is but a dream. Nobody has that. We may have great assurance, but it's going to flee from us sometimes. We're going to feel like the props are pulled out from under us. The thing to do is to do as David did and wrestle with the Lord in prayer. Claim the promises of God. Say, Lord, you called me. You showed me your grace in the cross of Christ. Did, did you do all that just to leave me alone here and let me be swept away? And of course... That kind of logic will bring you around as it did for David. It will put you back to see what God is really doing. And we do see him regaining his equilibrium, I think, in verse 10. As he poses another question for himself, a question that he knows the answer to, but it's important to pose these kinds of questions. He said, well, it's, it's more a statement, but it, there's a question behind it. Although my mother and my father reject me, yet will the Lord receive me. You see, he's saying, oh Lord, my relationship with you is, is more fundamental than that of my mother and father. Now the world says they wouldn't abandon me, and yet we know, of course, in the real world there are mothers and fathers who abandon their children. There's no more kind of crushing abandonment at all than when a child or a young adult is abandoned by a parent. And you see people growing up as adults, even if perhaps they were adopted and they had the good fortune to be raised in a loving home, and they say, yes, I have adoptive parents. I know they care for me. But there's this lingering question. I'd like to know the answer. Why did my birth parents turn away from me? 
And you have adults out there, you know, seeking all the documents, trying to get their way through to find a birth parent, and maybe 20 years or 30 years after going and, and trying to seek out the answer to this because it has haunted them. Why would my parent who gave me birth turn away? Well, David is saying, even if that will happen, I know my God will not do that. Even as I look upon a, a new mother with her baby there, caring for her with fierce love, she would give her life to protect that little baby. I know that the Lord's fierce desire to care for me is even stronger than hers. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Although she may forget, I, the Lord, will not forget you. The steadfastness, the determination of the Lord who has shown us His face in the Scriptures, in the Gospel, in the character of Christ, in the work of the cross, in the resurrection from the dead, the God who has shown us all these things has said, do you think I'm going to walk away from that? Why, it would be a, a more cruel and unthinkable abandonment than a mother leaving her infant child. Martin Luther wrote a little prayer that might have been paraphrasing this psalm, although it wasn't necessarily based on the psalm. Luther's little two-sentence prayer said this, Lord, although I am sure of my position with you, I am unable to sustain that position without you. So help thou me, or I am lost. Isn't that just like David? sure of his position, but unable to sustain it without the Lord's constant reminder and help in time of difficulty. And so we go to the end of this psalm in the last two verses, which is a return, a clear declaration again of the same positive things that were spoken at the beginning. Who's he speaking to? Well, it seems like it could just be himself in verse 13, but in 14, he seems to be declaring something that he clearly wants others to hear and be instructed by. It's as if he's displayed his own struggle from initial praise of God's security to wrestling with it and saying, oh, will you abandon me? I hope not. And now he comes back and says, I'm still confident. These last two verses might be called God, God confidence that waits in hope. If you happen to have the King James or authorized version, the older version, in front of you, there's a colorful way of stating things here. It's not a literal statement at all. It actually inserts some words that are not in the Hebrews, but it, Hebrew language. But it's an interesting statement. It reads this way, verse 13, I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would simply faint dead away unless I believed this, that the Lord, my steadfast God, who has determined to be closer to me than a mother to her little baby, would bring His goodness and allow it to be seen. And when he says land of the living there, there's speculation back and forth. What does he mean? Uh, there are a few commentators who say land of the living. Well, that must mean heaven where, where we finally live in eternal life. I think that's wrong. And I side with the majority who would say land of the living means the land where we live right now. 
David is saying, I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness even in this world. I'm not seeing too much of it right at the moment, but I know him. I know who he is. I know what he's done. I know what he's like. I will see his goodness in the midst of this life, of all the struggle and sin and temptation that's here. The Lord will fulfill it. And then he ends in verse 14 by this exhortation, telling us that even in the dark moments, and he's been through them just recently here, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, I say, and wait for the Lord. At different times in my ministry over the years, I've had occasion to be summoned to a hospital emergency room when something was going on. Sometimes not anything too devastating. Other times it is. And often I'm sitting out there, doctors are are dealing with somebody that I'm concerned about, and I have occasion to observe the people who are there in the emergency room uh, setting. Now, of course, today those of you who are medical people know that uh, emergency rooms are working harder and harder to, to see people faster, but there's still often pretty good weight going on there. And I'm, I'm interested to see how people come in and, you know, they make it in there and the person, they've accompanied is suffering in some way, maybe bleeding or maybe probably not bleeding, but certainly not feeling well. And they sit down and they give their name, you know, to the staff and they and, and then they're on the edge of their seats. They're thinking, well, I'm going to be called any minute. Well, then other names are called and other names are called. And every time they go, is it my turn? Uh, no, not my turn. And, and their bodies begin to sort of sit back. And their expectancy begins to wane a little bit. And they're, they slump down and, and they're discouraged. And they wonder, well, when am I ever going to be called? And they almost stop waiting with any kind of expectancy before they do get called. Well, that happens when people wait on God sometimes, isn't it? Just like that emergency room procedure. We go in there, we file our need at the window, and then we sit down and say, okay, God, this needs a response right now. It's really bad. And then we wait. And maybe we wait. And maybe we wait longer than we ever expected we should. And let me tell you, those who come to that situation with a shallow trust in the Lord start saying something to themselves. First, they're saying, how long, O Lord? And then in just a little while, they're grumbling, who does this God think he is to keep me waiting like this? And you know, they turned that way because they didn't have a well-established knowledge of God's strength and characteristics to begin with. It is possible to come to those emergency room situations of life already knowing the true God in His greatness. Already knowing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's revelation of Himself so that we have a a light in our darkness. That we understand that God is a promise fulfiller. We have dwelt on Him week by week, day by day. We have looked at His Word. We have absorbed His characteristics. The greatness of Him is parked in the center of us in such a way that we cannot overlook Him. And we know He's a promise keeper. And so we can come with a passage like Hebrews 11.1 and say, now faith gives substance to our hope and makes certain things that we haven't seen yet. And then we can wait. 
and we can wait in some kind of confidence that God is worth waiting for. Even if you have to wait across a lifetime. Noah listened to God in a dark time and God showed him to do something and he started doing it and it took years and years and years to accomplish it while he was mocked and opposed and ignored as a fool. But he waited on God in faith. Abraham was called to leave a mansion in a secure land and and go out for an unknown place and God said, live in a tent and when you get there, I'll let you know. And somehow he said, God is great enough that I can do that and wait until he gets me to that goal. Sarah was told she would conceive a child years and years and years before that happened in the unlikelihood of her 90s. Scripture says these people prized the revelation of God that they had. They prized his promises. They knew that he was true, and so they held on through all the darkness, knowing that he would come and he would meet his promises. And the Scripture says that is why God was not ashamed to be called their God. Our Father, as we have to wait in dark times, personal darkness, national darkness, spiritual times where there seems to be no light. Give us the confidence. Build our confidence up before we come to that emergency room time, that time when everything seems to be crumbling underneath us, so that we might stand in a firm place like David did. And however much we need to wrestle in prayer, we might know that you hold on even when we're not holding on. And so as the God who cares more than any mother for her infant, we put our trust in you for whatever the future brings because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. Amen.